So tonight we are going to, as Rich had prefaced here, get into the book of Numbers. We're going to continue on in the wilderness journey. And as well, as we're going along, you may hear something that, well, sounds odd or you have questions about, in which case you can text them in. And the number is at the bottom of your screen here. And I have a very blank iPad up here. And so come on, fill up this iPad. Give me a hard time tonight, guys. So what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be first starting off by just give a little bit of a recap of how we got here. So if we go to this, uh, this picture here, here's a little bit of kind of my own personal illustration of the wilderness journey. You can tell I was not an art major, but what, we, what it was, they started off in Egypt and then they crossed the Red Sea. I'm sure you remember that from the book of Exodus. They receive God's law at Mount Sinai and then they go on up and that's where the spies were sent up and that's the little dots there are where the spies went and the spies report came back that these people are huge and we're just like grasshoppers and so as a result there was unfaithfulness and and they did not trust God's plan and really what they they said was they said we don't want to go in here and so God actually gave them what they wanted by saying that this generation will not inherit the promised land and so they spend the next 40 years wandering the wilderness and where we pick up tonight, what we have to understand is that it is, it is that second generation. So at this point, most of the, the people who were there at the spies report who were unfaithful, they've died off. It's now their kids. And so now they're going to go, if you look at kind of the right side there where it says Moab, it's, we're probably not going to, well, we might get there just a little bit tonight, but right below there is Edom. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight is when they cross into this plains here of Edom. All right. And so now let's go ahead. If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and turn to Numbers chapter 21, and we're going to start at verse 4. So please, uh, if you have a Bible or even a Bible app, you can follow along. Of course, the words will be on the screen, but it is, I think, just really nice to have a, a Bible and kind of follow along. So here's what it says in verse 4. They, from Mount Hor, they sent out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. So what had happened was they, they were initially denied to go through Edom, so they had to go around. And, and so, um, so by having to go around, what they ended up doing was they had to first go south and then they had to go east, which if you remember that map from a few seconds ago is actually further away than the promised land. So Moses here is telling all the people, hey everyone, what we're gonna have to do is, right here, you see the promised land? And they're like, yeah, we see it. Okay, we're gonna go this direction. All right, and so that's the context here. They're, they are grumbling because, well, we've seen them grumble throughout the past, right? But the reason that they grumble in this particular case is because they are just, they're just upset, they're confused, they're mad. Um, Moses, we see the promised land, and yet you're telling us to go this direction instead. And so they have to now go around and rather than trusting God, rather than trusting Moses's leadership, what did these guys do? Come on, we've seen this playbook uh, a dozen times, haven't we? Now they become impatient and they grumble. And then in verse five, it says, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. And that's important because they're not just questioning Moses here, but they're speaking against God here. And they say this, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. I mean, this is straight up out of their parents' playbook from like a few chapters ago, isn't it? And, 
And also, what's interesting about for these guys that we have to notice is that for them, they, they've only known wilderness. Like they weren't born in Egypt. They weren't born and they, they weren't alive to see God part the Red Sea or the plagues. And so the only thing that they've known at this point is this wilderness with this promise that they will inherit it. And so, so they're given that promise. This is all they know. And yet again, their parents' playbook. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Worthless. Um, I believe it has some value. It keeps you alive, doesn't it? <laughs> but yeah, the manna, I can see it. You know, the people, there's some people out there who can have the same thing for breakfast every day, and then there's some of us who like to change it up, right? And in this case, there is no food and no water. And yet, here's the crazy thing is that they've been wandering this desert where there is no food and water. They have to, remember, they have to strike a rock and out of the rock comes water and, and food just falls from the sky, from heavens. And yet, even though that that's the case, that's what they've known, they've known that God is able to provide for them even when there's nothing, God can create something out of nothing. Still, they complain and they think they're gonna die. And so in verse six, God responds, right? And we're going to see how God responds. This is, this is a pretty interesting story out of the Old Testament. In verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. So not just any kind of snakes, but no, fiery. Like fiery, what does that mean? Does it mean that maybe they had like a red color? Maybe their bite was, was so burning or something? But, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. How would you like to have that, that you're just living your life and then all of a sudden a plague of fiery snakes are sent out and they're crawling around and they're biting you? Oh, oh my gosh, I'm gonna go home and have nightmares based upon this, all right? I already don't like snakes. This would creep me out. And many people died. And then in verse seven, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So God's people traveling the wilderness, again, this is the only thing that they've known, and God is using this to teach them about really how, how things work with, with God and his plan and his will, is that, is that whenever we commit a sin, that we go to him in repentance, in confession, a contrite heart, and and that's what the people do here. This is a learning moment for them. As painful and scary and memorable as this has to be, they are, they are, this is a teachable moment for them here. They are learning this concept of repentance, of sin, repentance, um, reconciliation. And in fact, they go to Moses, because Moses here is not just their leader, but once again, he's acting now as the intercessor, the, the go-between between God's people and God. And so they go to Moses saying, Moses, pray this. And so Moses prayed for the people in verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, make a, get this, to remedy the situation, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he see it, sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
I mean, what kind of irony is this? That imagine being bit, first of all, plague of fiery snakes, scary, okay, you're bit, you're in pain, uh, people around you are dying, and then all of a sudden you see Moses hold up a bronze serpent, and, and then if you looked at it, then you were healed. I mean, is this not a bizarre story? And, and yet, we can think about the irony, right? We can think about the irony of being bit with a bronze snake and then, but see, here's the thing. It's not the bronze snake. It's nothing about the brass. It's nothing about the shape of it. It's not even really about Moses holding it up, but rather it's, it's not the bronze that saves, but rather it's God who saves and it's God's power that saves. And that's what people are learning here. That's what they had to learn the hard way here in the desert. And so they look to the bronze snake and, and now they're healed, now they're saved. And also notice that, that God could have just simply healed them. Snap his fingers, healed, right? He could have. But he chose to have the people turn to the snake and look at it. Now, why do you think he did that? Well, it's because what also what he's teaching the people here is that the faith is action-oriented, uh, you, you know, you've, you've heard it said, right, like in uh, James, for example, talks about don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And sometimes it's really easy to say things like, well, sure, I believe that, but then not act on it. And if you really believed it, then you would act on it, right? And so what, what God is also showing these people here is that faith is action-oriented. Um, now, here's the really interesting thing about this, is that Jesus quotes this. Did you guys know this? Right before, you know, the, the big famous verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. All right, well, in the two verses right before John three sixteen, John, uh, I guess if my math is correct, 14 and 15, Jesus actually says that just as Moses held up the bronze snake and the people were saved, so too will the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever looks to him or whoever turns to him, receives him, will, will also be saved. And so, so how interesting is that? That Jesus, I mean, this really wild story here, Jesus quotes it, just as the snake was held up, so too the Son of Man will be held up. And indeed, Jesus was held up on the cross, and all who turn to him, right, all who receive him will be saved. All right, so then we get into uh, verse 19. And verse 19, the reason I showed you guys that map here is because after this whole bizarre incident with the bizarre or the uh, bronze snake, then what they do is they move uh, from there, then they go, um, they travel around. And so this next little bit here is going to talk about where, where they travel around. And in fact, they get to a well where they can actually just from the ground, they can just dig a hole and they can actually have fresh water pop up. Remember, so much of this time they've been out in the desert and well, preaching to the choir here, you guys know, we live in the desert, right? But, um, but for them to actually be able to just, I mean, the, the land is just so, um, is just, you know, it's just in that condition where they can actually just dig a well and actually to have water. And so they, they sing this song. So that's what this next section hears about. It says in verse 10, and the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth, Oboth, Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at I Abram in the wilderness that is opposite of Moab towards the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered and 
then it just kind of goes on, is basically what the rest of this is, is that it shows their travels, where they, where they go from place to place, from city to city. And then also, um, whenever they get to this well here, which uh, we'll read that part. So this is in verse uh, 17, when they get to the well. Spring up, O well, sing to it. The well that made the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staff. So they were able to take their staff and actually dig a hole and they just have water spring up. And so they travel around to those areas. And so that's the reason that I showed you guys that map so you can kind of see that's where they are um, in that area. All right, so then if we skip down to verse 21 is where we meet King Sihon. So um, the, the region that they end up in, this area they end up in is controlled by, well, King Sihon here, who's also um, the uh, king of the Amorites. And so we'll meet him and well, we'll see what he says. So in verse 21, then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites saying, let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. So they're making this request, and they did it, um, I believe, twice before to, uh, to the Edomites and, and to others where they essentially, rather than going all the way around, hey, let us just go through your land. I mean, come on. Come on, man. I mean, I mean, how much more do we have to really travel around here? And so they're asking just for passageway. And, and there was this King's Highway, which uh, has just simply been around, predates the story a long time, where it's just kind of a natural road that was formed that people would travel up and down. And they said, hey, we're just going to go on this, this highway that a bunch of people travel through, but just grant us permission to be able to walk through. And, and we're not going to do anything, all right? We're not going to, we're not going to stir up any ruckus here. We're not going to eat your food. We're not even going to drink your water. And, and they can say this confidently, well, because God, after all, will provide all those things. And so they're, they're really not asking for much here. They're just asking for, can we just cut through your land? But look how Sihon responds here in 23. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. So not only did he say no, which is what the, some of the other kings had said here. They were denied to cut through some other lands. But notice here that King Sihon not only denied Israel's really basic and simple request, but also he's now going, he's so mad at them and so, I guess, threatened that they're in existence and so now he's going to, he wants to fight them. He wants to, he wants to try to defeat them. So he's going to go up against God's people. And let's just see how that works out for him. Are you guys ready? All right. So in verse 24, I believe, is that right? Yeah. Um, and Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as to the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. So he not only denied access, but then he wants to go to war against God's people. And 
and God fought for them. See, and this is a major theme that we're going to get to with, with tonight's story, but also we're going to see it in uh, the next chapter, and we're going to see it in Joshua as God's people enter into the promised land. But we're going to see over and over again, not only God's protection of his people, but also we're going to see how it's God who fights the battles. It's, it's absolutely God. And, and today we can take that, right? And we can apply that, knowing that whatever things we got going on in our lives, that we don't have to stand with the sword in our hand all alone, but rather through faith in God, it's God who fights our battles. And, and otherwise, the, the Amorites were apparently pretty large people. I mean, they were kind of like the giants that were described in the uh, spies. They were big people. But it was, it was God who fought the battle and granted them victory. So they have victory against um, Sihon, who goes up against Israel. And in fact, what they do is now because they've defeated Sihon and also they've defeated um, the, well, that area that they've conquered, that, that land in that area, now they've, they've possessed it. Now they've taken ownership of it. And so, so also what we're going to see is that, that by the end of this little story here, they're actually going to take this whole region that's east of the Jordan River. So everything that is, that is um, east of the Jordan River there, that, that whole block, that whole region, they're going to have possession of it. And in fact, later, whenever they go into the Promised Land, um, that region then is uh, divided up between Reuben and Gad. And so, so it actually becomes uh, part of the, the kingdom later on. So, so they defeat Sion, and they take possession of this land, and then in 25 goes on to talk about this, how they took all the cities and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sion, the king of the Amorites who fought against the former king of Moab and taken all of his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. And then we have these, uh, therefore the ballad singers say, so you know, this is, what the ballad singers say, and they go into this poem here about, uh, come to Heshbron, let it be built, let the city of Sihon be established, and then they just kind of go on, and they're, they're singing about this, and also they sing about, woe to you, O Moab, uh, you are undone, O people of Kamash. Kamash was the, um, the pagan god that the Moabites had worshipped, and, and so it just goes on and on, you know, just kind of talking about that, um, that victory here of God's people defeating uh, Sihon and also defeating and taking territory there of the, uh, the Amorites. All right, so then we're going to pick up here in verse 31. Now we have King Og. King Og, the original gangster, he's going to be defeated here as well. It says this, it says, thus, lived, thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent out to spy out Jazer, Jazer, and they captured its villages and dis dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan, and Og the king of Bashan came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edge, at yeah Edgerai. So, okay, <laughs> King Og here apparently did not learn the lesson from King Sihon 
which is don't mess with God's people. <laughs> he did not learn that lesson because as soon as he sees them, he too wants to take up arms and try to defeat God's people. And then in 34, but the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him for, and this is what I talked about earlier to really hone in on this, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all the people until he had no survivor left and they possessed his land. So King Og goes to fight the Israelites and God protects his people. God says that do not fear. And see, this is one of our fear nots, right? We talk about how there's 365 of them. This is one of them. And, and you got to imagine, because especially King Og here in, in this area of the Amorites, he, he also was, I mean, they were, they were large people. And so God is saying, do not fear, for I have delivered them. I have, I have given them to you. And so it's God who fights the battles here. And God delivered his people uh, from, from this area. So now they have this whole region that I just talked about. They have this whole area that they have conquered and that they've possessed. And so this is so far a pretty good, pretty good for, for the Israelites. They've uh, have been wandering around in the desert for, for many, many years at this point. Now they get to these plains and here they are. They're just trying to ask for a passageway. We have these nations or these cities come at them and God protects them. God provides. God defeats these, these, uh, these nations and as well now they've possessed land. So for the Israelites, things are actually going pretty good right now. Which is why in chapter 22, Moab is now officially scared of the Israelites. So Moab has now seen all of this. And now they're thinking to themselves, we're next. And, and that's bad because after all, they've heard about Egypt. I mean, so all these, these, these city-states that we're talking about here, the Amorites, the Edomites, the Moabites, I mean, these guys were powerful. I don't mean to say that they weren't, but, but Egypt, oh man, Egypt was Egypt. And, and yet God defeated Egypt and God sent plagues and delivered them out of Egypt. And then now has defeated King Sihon and King Og. And they're seeing this and they're saying to themselves, uh-oh, <laughs> and they're coming towards us. Uh-oh. So Moab is starting to panic. And that's where we get into verse uh, four, or 22, sorry, chapter 22, verse 1. But before we get there, I have a question. So thank you for uh, putting in your question. So of the 40 years in the wilderness, what percentage of those years was spent walking from place to place versus stationary for a period of time? Man, that is a good question. I've thought about that too, because that's a lot of walking. I mean, if you look at this map, it really is. Uh, for me, what I would do if I was in charge, I would just go right up to the promised land and set up camp and just stay there for 39 years. No walking, all right? But apparently they, they did walk uh, quite a bit. And so it, it took them I mean, it took them 40 years where I don't, they weren't just walking the entire time, but, but certainly they did travel. So my guess is, and, and this is just kind of speaking broadly on this, that it would be that they would set up camp. And for them to set up camp, I mean, it, it was a process. It's 
more so than whenever you go camping and you spend 20 minutes setting up your tent. I mean, this was a process. The tabernacle, I mean, all the, the headquarters, the living, the tent meeting, all this stuff they had to set up. And so, so my guess is they would set it up and then live there for a few years, and then they would kind of move around from town to town in that way. But yeah, yeah, good question. And lots of, I bet they got their steps in those days. I think so too. Especially the Levites who carried the tabernacle. I mean, I bet those guys were, were built. I mean, my gosh. Okay, so in chapter 22, let's get into this just for a few minutes. So then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Again, uh-oh. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. After all, there was, well, they started with a million. And so Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. Yeah. So in other words, they're not going to miss a beat. They're just going to mow us over. I mean, just as a... You know, just as an ox easily grazes a field, that's what, they're just going to roll us over. They're just going to mow us over. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to our friend Balaam, who Rich had talked about in the historical minute. And Balaam, as we as described here, was the son of Beor at, at Pether, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amah to call him saying, behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me since they are too mighty for me. All right. So, so they contract out Balaam. Now Balaam, he was a, he was a diviner. He was a, a spiritualist and Balaam is a really perplexing, a really interesting character of the Bible, because he was very much in tune with, with sorcery and with, with the spirits. And so today, if you just kind of think of someone who's, you know, kind of using uh, magic or uh, talks to spirits or voices, it was, it was kind of like that, ex- except that that was his thing. That was his profession. That was, that was what he did. But, but more than that, that he would um, manipulate gods. So with these pagan gods, one of the things we have to understand is that, see, as Christians today living in the 21st century, we believe God to be all-powerful, all-knowing, that he is the creator of the universe, everything that we know. One God does it all, powerful. But the gods that were worshipped back then, these pagan deities, were, uh, were certainly not very powerful. There were, there was multiples of them and they were constantly in the stories of the myths back then. They were in conflict with each other. And so and they were manipulating one another. They were fighting. They were weak. They, they were like, they were like putty. It's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and that substitute teacher walks in and you say to yourself, yes, it's a free day. Okay. Like that's how they viewed deities back then that you can manipulate them to your, to your will. And that's what Balaam does. He, and part of his sorcery here, his magic, that he's manipulating these, these deities, these gods. And, but whenever he approaches Yahweh, it's interesting because he even 
describes Yahweh and, and says, oh yes, this is, I believe in God. Like he, he knows of God. He believes in God, that God's real. But he believes that he can manipulate God. And that's his big mistake right here, is that, that God is not one who can just be um, molded into your will. It's not your will be done. It's always, we pray thy will be done. God, your will be done. And so they contract out Balaam. And what they're hoping to do with Balaam is they're actually hoping that Balaam can summon up this Yahweh, this true living God, because after all, the, the reason these people have done what they've done is not because of them, but rather it's because of Yahweh, right? So the plagues in Egypt was because of Yahweh, the Red Sea, Yahweh, King Og, King Sihon, all because of Yahweh. So if we can just take Yahweh, we can harness his powers, and we can, rather than bless God's people, the Israelites, if we can just curse God's people, if we can take God's power and use it against the Israelites, then that's how we're going to be able to defeat the Israelites. So that's their strategy. So they contract out Balaam. They ask him to curse God's people. And so um, in verse 6, come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So putting faith in really God's power, which is interesting, but also they're putting faith in, in Balaam, that Balaam is able to use God's power in this way. And then in verse 7, So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees of divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. So they, they pay him for his services. Um, and then in verse 9, And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And then get this. This is just a bizarre story. I mean, and it's going to get even weirder <laughs> later. But, but look at this right here. And God, yes, that's right, the true living God, Yahweh, came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? So he had an audible talking voice here. And Balaam talks back to God and says, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me to say, has sent to me saying, behold, a people has come out of Egypt and it covers the face of the earth. Now curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. And then God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam here is having this personal conversation with the true living God. And God tells him, no, don't do it. And then in verse 13, so Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. All right. And then in verse 15, once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, 
for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. So we see this back and forth here, God saying, no. And then we see Balak say, pretty please. And and that's what this exchange is going on here. And then in verse 18, but Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord, my God, to do less or more. So what's kind of interesting is that, I mean, if we look here again at this, this, uh, this verse here, where, where Balaam here is actually calling out to the Lord, and that Lord, any time that you see uh, the Lord that's spelled that way with the kind of like the bigger L and the O-R-D kind of smaller or underlined, um, is Yahweh. And so, so in other words, he knows exactly who this Lord is. It's, it's Yahweh. It's the true living God. So in other words, it's not like, you know, whenever um, people in the Bible would out of respect for authority, call, let's say, a king lord, or um, to use the word God in like a generic way, kind of like how we use the word God could be talking about the true living God, or it could be a false God. And usually we differentiate that in English with like a capital G or, or a lowercase g. And, and yet, in this case, he is specifically saying, Yahweh, my God. And so all this kind of adds a little bit to the, this nature here of, of, of Balaam, is that on one hand, he's taking money from Moab to curse God's people. Like, he, he'll do that no problem. He likes that. On the other hand, he's talking audibly and personally to the true living God and, and acknowledges that this is the true living God by calling him Yahweh. And then also he's saying that he's the Lord, my God. So he's saying to the princes of Moab, oh, you know, I really can't because the Lord, my God won't allow me. I, I mean, Balaam here is just a, he's a perplexed character. He really is. All right. So then in verse uh, 19, it says this, it says, so you two, please stay here tonight that I may know more what the Lord will say to me. And then in verse 20, and God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. And then in 21, so Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. And so God actually, in this kind of bizarre case, actually now will allow him to go with the princes of Moab to demonstrate this really powerful thing that's going to happen next week <laughs> that we're going to get to. And so really, we, we, we close here to, to sum all this up here. We see God's people in the wilderness, and, and it's the second generation now that they've heard the stories but they got to experience it firsthand whenever they rebelled against God. They got to experience repentance and grace and salvation. They got to experience all of that firsthand. And then two now, they got to see God give them victory. Whenever these kings set themselves against God's people, they got to see how God would, is faithful to his promise and delivered them into their hands. 
And then also, too, we see God's protection around even whenever the king Moab wants to defeat the Israelites. He, too, wants to defeat the Israelites, but he wants to do it in a different way. Rather than through a sword, he wants to contract out this diviner to try to harness God's power against them. And next week, we're going to see a very, very interesting, uh, very bizarre story that, uh, that we're going to get into. So with that, let's go ahead and close up in prayer. Dear Jesus, indeed, we, we thank you for, for gathering us here together in person where we can come together to sing these praises, but also to have a moment where we really get into your word. Uh, the book of Numbers, where we see this, this incredible story of, of rebellion and yet repentance and s- salvation through this bronze snake. Also, we see your protection against these kings, defeating them and giving them new land and territory. And then also how we see a king who believes that he can manipulate you. And we're going to see next week that, that indeed you're a God who is powerful and cannot be manipulated. So God, we pray that as we head into this now countdown to the Christmas and to the holidays, we pray, Lord, that we can think about these things, about how, um, well, even John three sixteen about how for you so love the world, you loved us, that you sent your one only son, and we're going to worship and experience that on Thursday, Christmas Eve, and as well just how Jesus quoted this bronze snake right before that verse. And so we pray all this in your name. Amen.